that we are going to um, be presenting now with Anna Bash is um, about data issues that you are most likely go going to encounter when you're trying to develop a measure. These are things that we actually deal with every time we have to create a measure for any country, even for the global MPI that we already have the methodology, the dimensions, the indicators. These issues are still relevant for every survey that we work with. Some of, oh, oh, some of these issues already um, came up yesterday when uh, a few of you were talking about what do we do when we have missing values for some particular indicators or for some particular households and how do, how do we work in that case. So that's part of what we are going to cover today. That's just one of the topics that we are going to be talking about. Um, actually, we are going to go through all this outline. First, we are going to talk about which are the sources of information that gives us um, enough data to compute a multidimensional measure. Then we're going to talk a little bit about household surveys design and uh, what type of indicators do we use and how uh, do we get them to be um, at the right level depending on the unit of analysis. And then we're also going to talk about what's the applicable population and more details on what it is an applicable population will come later combined measures, and then at the end about missing values, in inconsistencies, sample drop, and bias analysis, and how this all enters into uh, a multidimensional measure. So we're going to start first, as, as it's uh, here in the outline, with the sources of multidimensional poverty um, measures. Basically, as, as you saw uh, in, in the last few days, when you want to create a multidimensional measure, like the Alkair Foster M0, for a particular country or a particular group of people, you need to have a unique source of information that is giving you microdata for all the individuals or all the households that you are going to be including in that measure. You cannot use aggregate level data. Aggregate, you cannot use the average years of schooling in the country from one source and the uh, proportion of households that don't have access to sanitation from another source. You need all the information, all the information to come from the same instrument, the same uh, household, that not, it doesn't have to be household survey, but from the same source of data. And it has to go down to the micro, to the level of the unit of analysis. It's what we call micro data, because we don't use aggregates, but rather we go to the level of detail of the unit of analysis. So if we talk about households, we need data at the household level. And if we talk about individuals, we're going to need individual data. <coughs> now, there are different sources of information from which we can get microdata that is usable or that can be used for uh, multidimensional <coughs> analysis. One of them is uh, are the census. Now, everybody knows what a census is. Every, every country has a census nowadays. It's just an enumeration <coughs> Sorry, of all the households or all the individuals that belong to some well-defined territory for a particular moment in time. National census happen every five to 10 years. Most country, countries uh, carry census every 10 years. And they cover a limited number of variables that have to do with demographics like age, ethnicity, marital status, gender, <coughs> or some educational variables like literacy or educational attainment some variables on housing, and uh, sometimes there are also some additional information like economic, uh, economic status, whether the person is employed or not, type of employment, but that's 
additional information that it's added and that it's not usual, that it's not always available or at least not in every census. Now, one of the main advantages of a census is that it's covering almost the entire population or the, it's supposed to cover the entire population for a particular moment in time. So we, can, we are able to get estimates with negligible uh, error at the, uh, at the moment that we want to get estimates. And that's one of the main advantages that we have in this, uh, when we use this kind of source of information. And also that we can go down and decompose by district or by subnational regions. Like we saw yesterday for the case of the SAMPI of South Africa, they are able to, pro to construct these maps and tables at the district level something that is not usually possible with other sources of information because of the sample size. But there are also some disadvantages of this kind of source of information, one of the main being the fact that they are carried uh, not very frequently. Imagine that you are in the government and you have to wait for 10 years for the next census to be able to track poverty. It's not actually going to be very useful in terms of policy design. So that is a big, con a big restriction or a big limitation of this type of data source. And again, as I was mentioning before, they have information on various dimensions, but it it's usually quite limited. There might be a lot of dimensions that we consider to be relevant or indicators that are relevant for our analysis that are not directly included in the census. And so this also gives us, um, limits the scope of the analysis that we are able to do with the census. And finally, even though tables and reports from the census are usually publicly available, it's much more difficult to get access to the microdata. It's very difficult for a researcher to, do act, to get access to microdata. So while the statistical bureau of the gover or, the, or the government in a particular country can work with that data for national purposes or for a national measure, for research, uh, um, if you, want, if you have a research objective or if you're trying to get a, a lot of people to be constructing measures, they are not going to be able to access the data and therefore there's no actually going to be a measure that it's implemented. Now, <clears throat> the second type of source of information that can be used in, uh, when we are constructing a multidimensional measure is administrative data. In this case, in this case it's usually some <coughs> agency or department from the government that it's collecting data already uh, just for administrative purposes. So imagine, for example, birth records or death records or <coughs> tax, uh, tax accounts. These are records that already exist, so they represent no additional cost for the government at the moment of getting the data. The data is already there. It's there for everyone already. When we think about birth history, for example, everybody's already registered. So there is no need actually to go and uh, carry out a new survey or to implement a new questionnaire. The data is already available. Um, but again, uh, the, the information is going to be limited. If we had a birth uh, record, for example, it's only going to have a few questions about the time of birth, how many months uh, of pregnancy, the weight at birth, maybe a few other characteristics, maybe some characteristics about the mother, but that's it. We are not going to be able to have information on employment or education or many other health characteristics that are also important. So these records are usually limited to one topic or to one uh, scope, and so it's difficult to use them for a, more, uh, for a broader measure of, um, of m m poverty, for example. 
And at the same time, these records are subject to changes or adjustments over time, and this can make it more difficult to make trends or to, re uh, to make comparisons over time. And again, it's not usually uh, available for researchers or for the general public to access these records. They are usually just used by the government. So a third option, which is the most commonly uh, source of information for multidimensional measures, are household surveys. Basically, there are, um, there are a lot of household surveys that are available. The data is available online, like the ones that we use for the global MPI, the DHS, and the mixed surveys. You can simply, you only have to register online, and then you have access to 300 surveys that are there online for you to use in the type of analysis that you want to do. And a lot of countries also have their own national surveys available online. So now it's, bec it's become easier to create measures using this type of data. Another advantage is that they, uh, they usually cover a wide range of topics. So there is usually a lot of information. Housing information is usually there, education, employment. Um, um, some have information on health. Some surveys have information on expenditure or income. Some surveys have additional modules on other topics that they consider to be relevant for each country. The problem, some of the problems here is that, um, first of all, we are not actually covering the entire population. This is a, a survey that is um, carried over a sample, which is designed <coughs> to be representative of the country, sometimes urban-rural, sometimes even uh, subnational regions or districts, depending on the sampling design. But it's not going to be without error. In this case, we are going to have some error when we are uh, getting our figures. And even though most countries nowadays have some sort of household survey, they are still not as frequent as we would like for um, a, the, the main source of information for, for a poverty, uh, for a, the, the source that we are going to use for our poverty measure. Basically, there are many, uh, many countries in the world in which their household surveys are still conducted every five years. And still, if we want to see the impact, for example, of a natural disaster on people or the impact of the financial crisis or the impact of um, or the positive impact of some uh, national anti-poor program for example we might not be able because we have to wait for five years and that's probably that might be even the next uh, political term even the next president so maybe that's not completely useful for a president even even though they exist and now the number of surveys as, as Sabina was showing in one of her sessions on Monday, even though the number of surveys that are available has increased enormously in the last, uh, the, the last couple of decades, it's still, their frequency is still um, not the best. At the same time, their coverage is also limited. As we were discussing before, in the case of DHS, for example, they only have nutritional information for children under five and women in reproductive age. And so they are for some questions, they are only covering some particular groups. But then there are groups that are not covered at all. People that are institutionalized because they are at hospitals or they are in prison, people that live in slums. These are people that are not usually surveyed. And these are groups that we could all agree that are particularly vulnerable. And, or indigenous people or people that live in rural areas which are very isolated. Sometimes they don't get, they are not included in the, quest in the survey itself and so we are actually missing information for groups that are particularly vulnerable to a situation of poverty. 
And then finally, there are also um, some issues with dimensional coverage. And in this uh, is something that we have been uh, repeating in, in, in our sessions, which is basically that there are a lot of dimensions that we could all agree that are relevant for poverty to identify people as poor, but that are not included in the surveys. Even though if, if household surveys have information on the uh, employment status of an individual, what type of job they do, they usually don't have enough information about the quality. For example, if they are doing some kind of hazardous work, if they are um, dealing with a lot of noise, or they are dealing with chemicals that could be dangerous for their work, and if they are using their necessary uniforms or protections to avoid problems, that's not usually available. We don't have information on empowerment or on violence, on uh, physical security. And that is very relevant, in particular in some uh, countries. Like Anna was mentioning yesterday, in the case of El Salvador, they have included in their, uh, or in, uh, they are now working on their uh, national MPI, and they have designed a questionnaire including a whole section <coughs> on violence and physical safety, because they think that in that country it's particularly relevant to have such a dimension. Now, this is not usually available, or use of time, for example. And these are all dimensions that we value and that we consider to be relevant, and still they are not yet available. So again, this is to push those of you that work in a stats bureau over here to help us to have better data and better sources to get better analysis of poverty. Okay, so um, this is about which are the sources. Now, just a, a few words on the metadata. For, for those of you who work with surveys, this is not something new, but basically the metadata is the data about the survey, or the data about the data. With the metadata, what they are doing is basically writing a report or putting together reports about describing the survey. So what they are doing is indicating how the, how the sample was designed, how many people were interviewed, if there was a, a, only some particular groups that were assessed for particular variables, they are also tel telling us uh, when was the field work carried and if there were any kind of problems. For example, um, we know that uh, some of the, the, of the regions in one country maybe weren't actually assessed because there was a flood and so the enumerators were not able to enter that region and so actually they are not covering the survey even though it's supposed to be national. So all these things are crucial when you are actually trying to get estimates from data. We cannot just simply uh, jump into the data and start getting results because if we don't take a look at how the survey was designed and which kind of problems they faced when they were trying to get the data, we might be uh, missing some adjustments that we need to, to do. Now, in the case of the surveys that we most usually use, that are DHS and, and MIX, and that you will be using also with, uh, with your groups, there, are a lot of inf there is a lot of information available for users. Every survey comes with a report, all of them, and the report has always the same structure. There is an introduction, there is a nice map of the country, so you know what, uh, how the country, what's the, the main cities of the country, and so on. But there's also one section, entirely one section, that it's about sampling design, and they tell you about non-response, sampling errors, and all of that information, all this metadata, it's so relevant for users of the data. And then they have, of course, all the tables and results, their findings, which are also crucial. Because when you are using DHS data, <coughs> it's going to be important that you get a percentage of people with access to electricity that is not dramatically different from the one that they got and they revise and they check several times. 
right? If you get a figure that it's completely different, then that could be a warning sign that maybe there's something that we are missing in our coding or in our tabulations. Now, the reports are not enough. They are very useful, but there are a lot of steps that are usually not included in the reports of the <coughs> DHS, as useful as they are, because there is a whole procedure of recoding DHS variables that, and, and some imputations even, that that happens even before they release the data. The data that they release for the, to the public has already been standardized in some way. There are some variables that are dropped if they consider that they are not reliable. There are some variables that are recoded uh, based on DHS definitions so that you can always, so in this case, if you tabulate the variable for water in DHS, it's always gonna have the same, it's very similar categories. If you take Tanzania DHS 2010, or if you take um, Niger to 2012-13, the categories for water are very similar because they are recoded to be in that way. However, there are always some country specificities, and that's why reading the report and reading these additional documents, uh, it's so relevant, um, and, and it's a, a, common pra a good practice to try to do it. They even have a whole website that is prepared for users to be able to get information uh, as fast as possible and, and to get the, better estimate, the best estimates that they can from the data. MIX has something very, very similar. They also have country reports. They publish also the questionnaires and they also have manual, manuals about how to use the data, how to merge the data, um, how recodes were done and, and all this kind of information. It's also available on their own website and they explain the sampling procedure in general and in particular for each country and all kinds of problems that they might have faced when actually trying to um, carry the survey uh, on the field. Okay, and something, an additional thing that it's very useful when we are working with um, data from countries that we don't really know, it's um, actually try to look for any kind of information or any kind of document that was used at the moment of carrying out the survey. So it's very common in mixed surveys, and in, well, it's very common in all these type of surveys to add some pictures or some illustrations when they are interviewing people because to, make, uh, to give them a better understanding on which are the categories of sanitation or water that we are considering. So they have pictures like this that they usually take with them to the field, and they show this to each household, and they have to indicate what, what type of water do they have. So they have here these three categories. There are <coughs> many more. These are just <coughs> some examples. And here we have these two uh, examples for um, sanitation, but again, there are many more categories in the service, as, as you will see in the data. But this is also useful because maybe in our countries, from where we are coming, uh, maybe in our background, we don't really know what each of these categories could be and what are the difference between them. So sometimes it can be not only useful for the people that are being interviewed to know what they are being asked, but also for the analyst to make sure that we understand and that we know which each category is. Well, yeah, uh, things like that happen. Yeah, so you do it, then you go back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
No, things like that happens in every survey that, that we work with, especially um, there are some, as I was saying, there are some categories that are always included, even if there are, um, if, if it's not a common uh, way of, uh, it, it, um, a common type of sanitation in a particular country, they do include it in the questionnaire, and then they might add three, four, five additional categories that are particularly relevant or that are uh, specific to the country. So sometimes we see new, uh, new types of sanitation and we also have to go to the manuals, to the pictures, Google it, try to find information of what uh, we are dealing with so that we know uh, whether it is deprived or non-deprived. And all of these tasks are very important and, and we do try to be very detailed and very precise because it makes a big difference at the end. If we are not very precise in, 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 in trying to understand the different categories, we, we might be classifying people as deprived or non-deprived but wrongly. Okay, so um, basically what we, uh, as I was mentioning before, what is mostly used for poverty measurement it's, uh, are the uh, household surveys, microdata from household surveys. And um, in terms of the, the, the sample, basically what, there are different types of samples that, or different ways to draw a sample from the uh, population that we want to study. One way would be to do what is called the simple random uh, sample. And it's basically just to pick randomly the number of people that we want to have in the final sample out of the entire population. So in that case, everybody has the same probability of being picked, of being selected for the final, um, for the sample that it's actually selected. Now, that, usually, that uh, type of sampling is usually quite expensive and it can also lead, since, it, uh, since it's uh, completely random the way that we are picking people, it could lead to some groups being very underrepresented. So when we want to make comparisons um, across groups, it may be very complicated because maybe we have too few observations. So this, sometimes this works at the national level to get uh, an, a, a figure that is nationally representative, but when we want to compare particular groups, it might be more complicated. So there are more complex ways to, uh, to, to get the sample for a household survey, which usually involve using strata and clusters. When we talk about using strata or a stratified uh, sample, basically what we talk is that we divide the population in groups in which the people that belong to each group are relatively similar. So it could be, for example, regions. So we know that everybody that lives in the north of the country, they are similar in the sense that they live in the north, all of them. Of course, they are not similar in all the characteristics. We just pick which is the variable that we are going to use for the stratification. Usually it's done as a combination of area, urban, rural, plus region. So we say north, rural, north, urban, and then we have the rest of the uh, combinations for the rest of the country. Now, this, what this allows is that we can pick different variables for the stratification. So if we want to, uh, for example, to have a measure of um, uh, what's the proportion of people that have access to healthcare by ethnicity. And some ethnic groups in our country have a very small population share. In that case, if we draw a, a, a simple random uh, sample, we might get that those particular ethnic groups, which had very low population share might only get 
a few observations in the final sample. So then we cannot really compare those few observations with the rest that we got for the other ethnic, ethnic groups. But if we stratify by ethnicity, then what we do is that we oversample people from those ethnic, ethnic groups in order to be able to get at the end uh, robust comparisons uh, across ethnicity. But what we are going to have to do is that when we are doing that, that we are oversampling some particular groups, then the use of weights becomes very relevant, becomes crucial actually. And I'm going to talk about weights in a second. Um, okay. So basically what um, the, the kind of a structure that it's used for household surveys, especially the surveys that you are going to be using, is that they are done in two or three stages. They are usually stratified, and as I was saying, they are usually stratified combining urban, rural, and region. In some cases, in some countries, it's only done by urban, rural, or only done by region. But most of the cases, they combine information for, for both of them. And then, from each strata, they select a cluster, or the primary sampling unit, which is a subset within, the, uh, within each strata. And then in the second stage, they actually pick individuals or particular households for, from each cluster. So as you can see, there are, there are actually three stages in most cases. First, the selection of the strata, then to select clusters within stratas, and then to select people within clusters. Now what we see is that when we start using all these kinds of um, more complex way of samples, more complex samples, as I was mentioning before, we're actually going to need to uh, be very careful in using weights so that we actually get final figures that are representative by region or at the national level. If we have over-sample a survey to include, to make sure that 30% of the sample belongs to this ethnicity that had a very, very small population share, <coughs> then if we don't correct that bias, at the end we're going to get figures that are not actually nationally representative. So it's very important to always use ways weights in the, um, uh, when you are trying to get your estimates out of the data that you have been cleaning and working on. Uh, besides these kind of weights, which adjust for sampling design, sometimes there are also weights, uh, or the weights are also adjusted in a way to correct for what we call non-response. Because we might have a design, a sampling design that is beautiful, that it's working very efficiently, that we are very proud of, and then at the time we go to the actual, to we go down to the field, we get that there are regions in which 95% of the people that were selected for the sample actually uh, complete the questionnaires, but maybe we have another region in which only 60% of the people uh, complete the questionnaire. So in that case, you, we start getting that, even though they were supposed to be uh, representative at the end, if we have a much higher non-response rate in one region, region that, than the other, then again, we need to balance that out, reweighting uh, the final data. So weights are really important to correct for a lot of these things. And you're going to find in your data sets that there's a variable already created that it's called weight. And so please use it. <laughs> um, OK, now a few more comments about uh, samples and subsamples. Another thing that. Uh, we notice when we are working with this type of surveys is that 
even if um, we have already, I have already mentioned that, for example, for nutritional data, DHS are only covering children under five and women in reproductive age. But in many cases, in many surveys, like it happens in Tanzania 2010, not even all women and all children are being covered. Sometimes it's too expensive to cover them all. So what they uh, decided to do with this particular survey was that only children from women that were selected were going to be measured for anthropometrics, for example. And only half of the women selected were going to be measured for anthropometrics. So even, uh, so after, uh, at the end, we don't have anthropometrics measures about weight and uh, height or BMI for all the women in reproductive age and all children under five, but only to a subset, for a subset of them. And so we need to make sure, because for the rest of them, they're actually not, they were not selected for measures. And so in a way, they, uh, we don't have information. We don't know whether they are deprived or not. And this is very important because at the end, you will also have to decide what you do with these people. Whether you drop them, whether you assume that they are not deprived, what kind of, um, you're going to have to make a decision about uh, how to treat these kind of observations. And this is something that in DHS surveys and in, in mix it happens a lot, especially with nutritional samples. In the surveys that you are using, all of them, all of them have a nutritional subsample where only about uh, half, half of the population, one third in the case of Pakistan, had actually uh, been uh, measured. And so what we did was that we only kept the population that was actually measured. So now you won't have to face that problem, but in the future when you download your own DHS and you start computing, you're gonna find that there are variables that indicate that very clearly, whether they were measured or not. And or another thing is that, um, as, as we mentioned uh, throughout this, these days, uh, for, for example, when we were presenting the global MPI, for 69 countries, we were able to uh, get subnational decompositions. Now, what happened with the other 39 countries that we had in the global MPI? Well, basically, these were uh, surveys that were designed in a way that they were only nationally representative. Or in the case of Argentina, it's only urban. It's only representative at the urban level. So, Basically, what it's also very important that you read the reports and the manuals so that you know which is the level of disaggregation for which your data is actually representative. We would all like to get uh, district level results and create these beautiful maps, but sometimes we cannot do it because our survey was designed to be only nationally representative. And so that's also something that you are gonna have to bear in mind when you work with the data. This is just to show you an example. This is a, a very good practice and this is something that I was talking before about the non-response rate. What we see here is um, for different um, indicators, in DHS reports and in mix, what you're gonna see is that they usually include uh, first, in the first, they usually include uh, what's the response rate and they have it for men, they have it for women, they have it at the household level. So it's useful for the users to know that kind of thing. And then even here, we have it by urban-rural, which is 
fairly similar, but then when we go at the regional level, we see that in some regions it was almost 95%. But here we have another region, the, the north region, in which only 77% of those selected households actually reply the uh, or, 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 or um, yeah, only 77 reply the or, or were actually interviewed. So that makes that we there are going to be uh, there is going to be a need to actually reweight the answer so that we get regionally represented um, results and we are able to compare by region. Oh. Good. Now, uh, something else to consider is what's the unity of I the unit of identification. This is usually something that it's um, usually referred to as unit of analysis, but these two things are not exactly the same. Think of the case of the global MPI. The unit of identification is actually the household. As we were talking on Tuesday, we, uh, the identification of whether people are poor or non-poor happen at, happens at the household level. And then all the members of the households are equally poor or non-poor. Now, when we actually create estimates at the end and when we present our tables, we do it in terms of population. So even if the identification happens at the household level, then the analysis that we do is what's the percentage of the population that it's deprived or that it's poor or that doesn't have access to sanitation. So the, level, the unit of analysis and identification is not always the same. It could be the same, but it's not necessarily the same. So it's important to know that. Because even though we might present figures that says the percentage of people that are poor or that are multidimensionally poor is 89% uh, in Niger, actually our indicators, we need them to be accurate, not at the individual level, but at the household level, because the identification happened at the household level. And so it's going to be important when you decide with your group which kind of measure you're going to create which is going to be the unit of identification. And you're going to have to make sure that your indicators are accurate at the level of the unit of identification. So if you decide to create a child poverty measure, you're going, uh, that it's going to be at the individual level for each child, you're going to need indicators that go to each child, to the level of each child. If you create a household indicator, you're going to need to have indicators for, um, if you decide to create a house, household level index, you're going to need to have variables or indicators that are accurate at the household level. And you're going to need to consider these things and to actually sometimes combine or adjust indicators in order to, um, to be able to, to get that. Uh, something else uh, about the accuracy of the indicators, uh, that the, this is something that also affects our uh, usual socioeconomic analysis is that when we are talking about um, some of the indicators in, in the surveys like consumption or illnesses or time use, usually they are asked for a very short uh, period of time. Because when we ask people uh, how, many, how much money did you spend on food in the last year, it's most likely that they are not going to be able to remember or they are not going to be able to give precise answers to that. So usually when we talk about consumption, we ask about the last week. When we ask about whether you were sick, we ask about the last month or the last two weeks, and we ask, them, we ask people whether they suffer any serious injury or if they were sick or uh, things like that. 
And if we ask uh, for questions about time use, it's usually about the last 24 hours. Now, we, uh, the assumption behind this is that we assume that people are going to be able to have um, to recall better or to, to be more precise about how they use their time uh, or how they spend their money for food or uh, whether they were sick or not. Now, of course, that there could be things that affect those numbers. Because like in the examples that we have here on the, on the slide, imagine that I ask you about last week and uh, about your food consumption last week, and it happens that you had a family wedding or a birthday party. Then you're going to have a much higher consumption than you do on average. Maybe you just happen to get the flu, but, on but, but really you are a very healthy person. You're, you don't usually get sick. Maybe you haven't been sick for years, but it just happens that you got the flu the week before you were interviewed. So these things could actually be affecting these kind of, of indicators because these are, um, because we are asking for such short uh, time uh, reference. Now, in the case of um, aggre the aggregate measure, so if we want to create what's uh, the average of consumption or the average time use or the average time that people spend on leisure, for example, the assumption or what, what we would expect is that on average we will get results that are accurate because as some people might be getting sick that they are not usually sick, we could get another cases of people that get sick very often but they just didn't happen to be sick in the last two weeks. Or maybe people that uh, had a wedding and so they ate a lot and other people that maybe were on the diet or they just happened to eat less than they, what they usually eat. So on average, these things kind of compensate themselves. But they are not going to be accurate at the individual level. And remember that we need indicators to be accurate at the unit of identification. So this is something that we need to bear in mind. There is no obvious way in which we can solve this, because we don't really know. But there is something that is going to be affecting our results. As I, were, as I was mentioning, another option would be for um, for us to use longer uh, reference periods, but there people could actually start being more inaccurate because they forget, because they don't have a good record of how much money they are spending. And so again, we might face other types of problems of accuracy. But it's just, this is just a comment for you to know because these are all things that affect the final measure. And then, um, okay, is Okay, and then another thing that, uh, that you have already been uh, discussing with us in the last few days, it's what, would, what do we have to do when we have some information that is available at the individual level, some information at the household level, and then some information at the village level, for example. So this will depend on the purpose of your measure, and it will depend <coughs> on which is the unit of identification that you have chosen. So for example, if in the case of the global MPI, again, uh, we have some information that is available at the individual level, like years of education or uh, child school attendance for children that, it's, that are on the age bracket or uh, nutritional information for some women and some children. Now, we combine this information, this individual information, to get a household indicator and then at the end we bring everything at the household level. But we could also um, do it in the other way around, depending on which is the type of uh, indicator that we want to create. I think this is my last, yeah. 
<laughs> so what's the applicable population? The applicable population of an achievement it's the group of people for which this achievement is relevant. And this entails two conditions. First, the achievement can be measured. In other words, it's conceptually relevant. I'll give examples and so maybe. Second, it has effectively been measured. We have data. And what we're going to see, and maybe you already have seen in your data or in your, when you start thinking about your measure, is that there's some achievements that we would like to incorporate in our measure sometimes are either conceptually or the data or empirically available just for some groups of the population. Examples. For instance, examples of achievements that are only conceptually relevant for groups of population. Income. It doesn't make sense talking about the income of a five-year-old so, or a seventy-year-old. Maybe it makes sense to some people, but not to, to, to most of them. Vaccinations. Most of our vac vaccinations are in our first younger years, early stages of life. So if you have an indicator of vaccination, your, po your applicable population will tend to be children between zero and five. Or employment status, similar to income. But income can be relevant for a child, because if the household income is too low, the child suffers. Completely agree. I'm not talking about if it's relevant as, an, as in the household. Conceptually, I cannot collect data from a child on income. But I can, and this is, I, I think I'll cover, but I'm not sure, so I'll say it now. Uh, what we do for income, for instance, is that yes, we, we collect at the household level, so we collect the household level, and we assume that it's distributed equally. And then we get to the individual. But here I'm just talking conceptual, but of course it's not. Uh, other ca case is when, the, yes, the achievements are conceptually relevant to the whole population, uh, and it, but they have not been measured. So we could measure, but we don't have the data. So we, it's possible, but we don't have data. And for that, it's the anthropometric measures. So we could measure the weight and the height for everyone. And for children, okay, we use the standard deviation, and for adults, we use the BMI. We could have such type of measures for all population. But when we go to practice, <coughs> most of the surveys only collected for subgroups, normally under five, sometimes all women in reproductive age, sometimes only women in reproductive age who, are who have ever been married. So it varies. How to deal with this? And I think this is important, because you are dealing with this yourselves in your measure. So, how to believe this? The first possibility is we construct an indicator, a measure, not an indicator, a poverty measure that uses only indicators applicable to everybody. Only an universal measure. What's the problem of this? Is that the set of indicators that we can consider is going to be much smaller. There will be things that we cannot collect to every individual. We'll have housing conditions. We will have, I don't know, things more. We, if we have data, we might have nutrition information, if we have data. So, but we'll only be able to, s to include indicators that we have for every individual 
and for which we have data. Other possibility is that, oh no, let's instead look just to a group of people. Let's create a group-specific poverty measure, a, a children poverty measure, a women female poverty measure, a elderly poverty measure. And this can be very relevant for designing group-specific policies. So yes, children actually it's a group that lots of people are interested and there is a efforts to develop measures of children poverty. And so we just consider children. However, <laughs> discriminating by groups may lessen the applicability issue, but not always solves it. In the case of children, we think about children like from 0 to 18, they are not an homogeneous group. I say the vaccinations are just for young. Uh, I say as school attendance are so also only about six. So it lessens, but you still might have to do uh, some adjustments. The second problem, it's of course, it's, it's good for group policies, group-based policies, but if you want to track at national level, or if you want to do targeting at the household level, the measure's not gonna help you. And third, when you are compartmentalizing the population and look to separate groups, you might miss that in some households, some of the groups poor in both might be overlapping. But as you are looking to the things separately, you're not seeing, oh, in this household we actually have children poor and female poor. So it has its constraints. Finally, a possibility it's to combine achievements that are not universally applicable. What do I mean? I mean that we can draw information from a subset of the household members. And I'm assuming that my unit of analysis now is the household. So I'll, I can use indicators that are only applicable to children, but extrapolate that information at the household level. And some of you, I think, talk about this in the previous session in your groups. Uh, and that's a possibility. What do I will have to do? Because to do this, I will have to make assumptions. And in some cases, I'll have to make assumptions on how the, the achievements is of, uh, on the intra-household distribution of the achievement or on the externalities of the achievements. Uh, I'll show you just now. This is what we did with the MPI. So the, our, the MPI is a, a unit of identification distinction that Adriana just did, is the household. However, I have information for, uh, that are uh, about the children, uh, attendance, uh, nutrition. So what do we do to then, from, the, uh, from information on the children, extrapolate to the household? For instance, in the case of the nutrition, what happens? It happens that most cases we only have data on the HS, on mix, or just for children under five, or just for women. So what we do, it, we assume, we determine, we determine, that a household is deprived, <coughs> so our normative decision was to define the indicator that a household is deprived if there is at least one child or a woman that is undernourished. So what's the, what I'm assuming here is an external, a negative externality. So having someone undernourished in my household, that's negative for me. In case of child mortality, also most of the surveys only have information on w women. So they ask women if the, uh, any of their child died. 
they never ask men. And sometimes maybe they are a couple and it's fine, but other ca cases might not be. And sometimes we only ask women in a certain age, so it might not, so not capture all the children that were died. But we assume that if at least one of the people in the house so said, oh yes, I lost a child, you are deprived on child mortality. And for school age attending, uh, attending of school age, we attending school, we determined that if we found at least one, one children for which we have data in the household that is not attending school and it should, and for us should, it's between six, like it's at least eight years of schooling, uh, the household is deprived. So we assume negative externalities to, to make this call, how to bring, to draw the information from a subset and attribute it to my household. We could also, and we have like some indicators, it doesn't have to be negative externalities. You can assume positive externalities. And we do this for the years of schooling. So we assume if there is at least one person in the household that, is that has five years of schooling, everyone in the household is non-deprived. So this is based in the idea that he will share with you some of your no his knowledge. He will help you if, if you are the non-deprived. <laughs> the other people who have not, you will be able to read inf relevant information for you. Uh, the other cases in other measures, if someone has a mobile phone, we assume that the household has a mobile phone because we assume that night people share their own, uh, own mobile phone. But in the case of the MPI, it's the years of school. We still might be confronted with some problems. <laughs> this is not like the everything is going to be fine. It may be that uh, in households, no one. E so uh, achievement is not conceptually relevant for no one in that household. For instance, school attendance. But if I live with my husband and I don't have children yet in my household, there is no one that can give an answer to that question. So how do they classify my household if I don't have no one that fits in that category? Possibilities. We can go ahead and just drop that how that households. So let's forget about the households that have no children in school age. That would drop lots of houses. <laughs> what would happen? It's the most likely would like the fact that I the that I don't uh, the group that has not anyone for which that achievement is relevant. It's not random. So it's normally my kids associated with uh, some demographic structure. So I, by gonna, like I, if I do that, my, my poverty measure will not, it will not be significant, it will not be representative of the population because most likely these two groups might be different. What can I do? I could also do, so for me, suppose like, yes, I don't have any children in school age, but I have every other indicators. So let's forget for this household the school age and let's reweight the other indicators. So that would be a possibility. What's the problem? Forget about dimensional breakdown. Because if you remember long ago, <laughs> we talked about how to, that the MPI was the weighted average of the, uh, the censored headcounts being the weight, the weight of the each indicator. But now if I, each indicator might have different weights because in some households I readjust the weights. It was nice, but forget about it. 
In this case, you cannot do it. Oh, I'm losing my, my little mic. So, what do we do with the MPI? What we have done? And we think it's maybe the... Uh, it's a question? MPI, that's a good question. It normally comes, I think, from the survey, so what the survey is defined. And typically, I think it is, but don't quote me, it's the people who share a meal uh, together in of on the same pan. But it comes from the, the my data. If I my metadata, I will go to the metadata and I'll see what they define as the household. Here I'm going to keep it simple and it's people living together. Although, also we do, <laughs> nothing is simple. Usual residence. So there is also the, the questions about who is a usual resident and we, know we also drop the non-usual residents because they might not be what's similar to what Adriana was saying of some events that are not uh, typical and they might bias. Usual residents, they are, they are also not part of my household so their achievements are also not considered. Oh my God. So it's a follow-up of this question? Yes. Uh, no, we look at the household. And so it's true that, in like I said in my case, I said uh, me and my husband and a child. But you're right. In most of the households, it's not a, a, a couple and children. Because in lots of developing countries, in the same household, live different generations. They are all part of the same, of the same household. And so... Uh, I don't, I'm not talking about families again, so I don't know. Households. Yeah, I mean, I mean if in the context of the MPI. Yes, it's households. About the uh, deprivation. Mm -hmm. If you have two families in one household. It's so the household. Doesn't, there is no difference for me between if it's one family, two families. For me, it's the household. The unit of, re of identification is the household. It might include one, two families. But there was a question here in the front, and then. Uh, my question is on the same, it's almost the same question, but I'm wondering if uh, one family, one man has like five wives and they stay in, within the same area, does that make a household? And is there a maximum number of people that can make a household? No. Again, uh, it's defined on the, on the survey. And normally, if they share the meal together, they are part of the same household. There is no maximum of numbers. So it's one of the questions that uh, some of the data that it's collected, it's about precisely what's the size of your household. And you're going to see on your data, depending on your country, you might have a big range of household size. Let's move on a little. It's about the... The household still? Okay. Hi. 
just that in the limit exceeds the The limit exists just for household in a house. It, I think well, uh, I think it's uh, the limit is six, but six households by house by house. Because if we, there are more households by house, it could be a collective house, and it doesn't. Yeah, you can have a building. But it's the point is if you share the meal, yeah, yeah, yeah. so you can have yes, a, yes, I, yeah, it's not a house. Uh, there are not limit for members in the household, but the, there is a, a limit for households in the house or no, in the building. No, 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 I can have five houses, six houses. No, it, I, there is no size, there is no household size yeah. that defines the, the definition of the household. It is that the, the definition is whether the, they share common resources and in DHS food and also how long if they were if they are living in the house is the general usual members of the household which is defined as how many days in a year that they spend in the household that's usually definition and i think just to go back to the question about children if there are two families within a household and they have five children each the way the children are sampled is that from every household a random in in some cases in for some countries all children are uh, sampled uh, in some in some other countries, it could it could be that a random sample of children from the household are are uh, sampled. So what happens as a result is that you might get two children from this uh, couple and another two children from another couple. So that is determined um, through sampling, which is random. So what ha happens as a result is that you get an idea of the general nutritional status of the children. <coughs> so when you were asking that how does it happen if there are f if one couple has five children and another couple has five children, do we who who is measured and who's not measured children? So it's just it, again children are sampled just the way women in the household are sampled. And so in the end, it doesn't matter who children they are. <laughs> it matters if they are part of the same household. And just to wrap up this discussion, all of this is specific to each survey. So when you go, now we are talking about what's general, what we found in DHS and MIX, but when you use your own survey, again I go back to what Adriana was saying, you have to go to your metadata. You have to see what's the definitions that have been used in your particular data. Here I'm just talking about generalities and our experience is based on DHS and MIX. But in your country, the definitions might be slightly different. I'm going to move on, and so in the case of a household that there is no children on, on, uh, on school age, in the school age interval, what the MPI does is assume the household is non-deprived. So as they don't have anyone that could answer the question, let's <coughs> go ahead and assume them non-deprived. <coughs> this is an assumption, so at some point we'll have to see how this impacts our results and I'll come to that in a little bit, very similarly, it's uh, what I I'll answer to that with something that my Adriana just said. Here, uh, she didn't say with these words, but the idea was this. We are not interested on the, on the family's achievements on average. We would like to know the, the real achievement. And that's why when you have those indicators that are like in the last week, 
we assume, oh, when you are interest, interested in just having the average consumption for a group, that's fine, because you just say, oh, some people will over-report and others will not, will under-report, and you take the average, it's fine. For poverty, I really would like to know, especially if I'm using for targeting, I really need to know what is the individ individual, the household level of deprivation. So I, I, I cannot take an average because that is gonna, for instance, for targeting is impossible. And otherwise it's like you might end up allocating the averages also wrong and completely bias your the joint distribution of the deprivations. How do I choose who to drop and who to keep? You are saying that yes, uh, you consider all that do not have that particular information as non-deprived. Mm -hmm. But instead of taking all of them as non-deprived, you could take 50% of them as non-deprived and the remaining 50% has been deprived. All of them as, uh, no, but that's what I'm saying. You are, you are assuming that on average, that would be fine because some of them might be deprived and others will don't. And that's what I, I cannot do. I'm interested on the on on the on the joint deprivations. So I cannot like assume like, oh, let's see, these ones are this. No, I rather for it's for that I'll assume something and for all will be the same. Then make a because I I I might end up. It's just. You have to you have to have the deprivations uh, at your unit of identification, and so if you because you there is so so many risks you might end up assigning to people who already have more dep higher deprivations to assign them as deprived and the others that have lower less, and you could have completely a different picture. But it's but it's a but it's a problem. I'm not like it's, so that's why I, I understand that you want to that it's everyone will want to and to propose how we could make it better. So I'm not saying that this is like, this is what we found until now that seems the less problematic, but still, for each case, we need to go and look the impact of this. And this is very similar, so it's just like, maybe the, so imagine a household, and actually, conceptually, the, the achievement made sense for everybody, like nutrition, anthropometric, anthrop anthropometric measures, made, are conceptually relevant for everybody, but I only have data for a group. For instance, I only have data for children under five, and it's an household where there are no children under five. So it's very similar to the, and to the, to the previous example, but instead of being a conceptually not relevant indicator, it's just because I don't have data for these groups, and I don't have people in the other group. The, what we do is the same. So what, uh, on nutrition, so, if the household has no members in the groups for which we have data, we assume them as non-deprived. Of course, this is what they call an heroic assumption. There might be <laughs> lots of people. There might be people. I don't have a kid there. It's undernourished, but I have a, um, a woman. So this is a, a conservative approach. So we assume like this is the lower bound. So we are not inflating poverty by assuming that they are all deprived, but we are, uh, so it's the lower bound. I'm saying the example of the MPI with the example of 
this, of, the, of nutrition. But you can fake make the, uh, the same argument on the other side, and then you will have an upper bound. This depends on the in specific indicator and your context of what you are working. What's the problem of this? What's the problem of me combining information from different uh, groups, subgroups of the household? It's like the, if I include an indicator of school attendance, and then I assume that every household that has no children on school attendance is not deprived, the probability of a household being poor or non-poor maybe depend on the demographic structure of the household. What do I mean? So if uh, I have several indicators that are only relevant for some groups, there will be, uh, for instance, children under five and school attendance. There will be a, a fraction of my sample that may be bigger or smaller depending on the demographic structure of the country. There will be automatically non-deprived in those indicators. And this may be a problem. <laughs> Maybe yeah, everyone wants to not have kids so they're not poor. No, it's not that, but our perception of poverty might be not correct. Although, however, please, <laughs> that doesn't mean that we should not include indicators that come from subsets of the household members. If there is a normative reason to include them, we should still include them. And that's why in the MPI we use. There is some conditions, or with this inclusion of these indicators, at least that should fulfill some conditions. First, we cannot include only indicators that refer to a specific group. Because in that case, what would be better? Just do a group measure. So if all my indicators refer to ch children between in school age, what's the point? Or all indicators refer only to adults, and I'm not looking to children, maybe, well, I'm not going to call it a, a, like saying that the household, I'm looking just to the adults, to the group, to a group, which is fine. But with the, the restrictions that we mentioned in the back, it's fine for a group measure, but don't go and call it uh, a national measure, because your indicators are only capturing the deprivations of a specific group. So if all of your indicators are that group, that is not a national measure, that's a group measure. You also should make sure that <laughs> the achievement that you pick is relevant for an important group of people. So to make sure that there is a big proportion of the households that have someone for whom this achievement is relevant. For instance, when you say that children between 6 and 15, yes, you guarantee that there is a serious proportion of the households in most countries that will have at least one child. Some countries will have more or less, but they have at least one. When you put uh, 0,5, it already depends, <laughs> but there should be still lots of countries with children 0,5. Well, it should be the same or less. I don't know. Depends on the again, on the, on the age structure of a country. But the point being, you want to capture a big proportion. You want to make sure that this indicator, if I'm looking just children of 0, 5, and I'm saying the households, should be an indicator that I can compute for most households and not have to assume that it's non-deprived, because then I'm just looking small. However, 
there are indicators that are very specific, but they are intrinsically important. They may be very specific because it's something that it occurs in a specific time, or it's because it's only relevant for a small group, very small group, uh, like for instance conditions associated with pregnant women. Should we include them in our indicate on our measure or not? So if pregnant women go to their daily checkups, daily not regular checkups. So there is like some they should every three months go to the to the doctor and see if everything is good to with the, your pregnancy. So maybe that's important because I want to ensure maternal maternal health and the child's health or the delivery of the child, but. Maybe the percentage of people that are having a kid this moment that I'm doing a survey might not be so big. And so by including that indicator, I'm just looking into a little proportion of the, of the households. So maybe in that case, it's better to have an indicator that side instead of including it. Of course, you can include it and also adjust to weights because you may think it's not so important. So this is only things to think about, how to deal, what are the limitations and how can you deal with it. So when it's a very specific thing, maybe just keep it on the side and report it on the side. But weights are always in a way. And of course, you should make an empirical test to show how your measure is, uh, what's the impact of the household composition in your measure. And uh, uh, Sabina and Mariema have done that for the MPI. So they made a series of tests to try to assess the impact of the, of the household composition on the MPI. First of them, they look at the differences, so test the difference between the households that were MPI poor and the households non-MPI poor in terms of a series of demographic characteristics. The household size, the number of children under five, number of females, number of members 50 years or older, proportion of female-added households, proportion of school-aged children. And they see if there was differences. Not very statistic statistically differences. Good news, the MPI seems to be robust to this. Other thing that they did as well is that they composed the MPI by age and gender, and they rank all the countries. I don't know how many countries were there at the time, but probably 100. And they looked, and so the rankings, sometimes positions might be slightly different because they might be. And they looked at the correlations. They test the correlations between the rankings. And the correlations were high. So it seems like although this, the, the demographics can affect the correlations that we get by age for MPI by age group, the rankings based on the MPI by age groups are not so different. And they also looked to the pairwise comparisons. So what's the proportion of comparisons between two countries that would not change? So if I look to the MPI of Colombia and IT uh, for children or for children between 0 and 5, and uh, uh, in the two countries, and uh, so uh, children 0 5 and children, I have to have a second one, and, and uh, adults 16, 10, 10 to 16, or children 16, I can still, uh, the pairwise, so one is, poorer than the other in both cases. So that would be a robust pairwise comparison. So we see the percentage of comparisons that would still be true in the, depending on the different MPI that we use. So this is a kind of analysis that you could do. Uh, similar, like this is different because cross-sexual and you have one country. Uh, 
which is the first thing you can do. Another problem that happens. So this is like the if we have data, if the data was collected, if the thing is conceptually relevant. But there is another problem that it's more into practical, let's say. Sometimes we collected the data. So we went to the household and we tried to measure that children. But for some reason, the data was not collected. So the children or the mother refused, or no, they refused, no. Or the mother, or they lost the data, or they put a wrong value, or they put like a, 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 a weight that didn't make sense. So like sometimes it, that's, so the first thing is that I don't get the data. For some reason, that question in that household was not done. I don't have the information. Uh, or it was here. Maybe the interviewer forgot to ask. Can be inconsistent. So when someone went to clean the data and looks to the, the weight of children between 0 and 5 and find a child that weighted 150 kilos. I think maybe this doesn't make sense. Maybe this is a mistake when someone wrote the data. Let's forget about this. So to take a value that it's not plausible. And in other cases, the people said, oh, I don't know. So how many years of schooling do you have? Oh, I'm 90 years old. I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember how many years I went to school. These are all end up being missing values. So we tried to collect the data, but the people, for some reason, not the people, for some reason, we don't have the data. How we should treat this? So it's not like people were not there. I cannot assume that they are not deprived. They are there, but I don't have the information. In some specific cases, for instance, like in years of schooling, maybe I know that there was five kids there in years of schooling, but I only have information for the three. The other two, for some reason, the data is lost. What can I do in these situations? Uh, how can I deal with this? The first thing, when I'm designing the indicator, so when I'm thinking about the indicator, then if I'm already seeing the data, I can use, or I think, maybe if I'm not, not seeing the data, I can think, I'm going to use a rule that allows me to assign a value even when I have, missing, when I have some missing data. So, and the easy one is, our, for instance, here I have years of schooling. So, I'm creating, I want to create an indicator of years of schooling, but in some households I might only have information for one person, for the household head, or for the household head and his wife, or maybe just because they didn't collect for the other people. So, I have or two people, and I know that there are more people there. How am I going to deal with this? What we did in the MPI, we said, if at least one person in the household for who I have data has at least five years of education, fine. I don't care if there is people that I don't have data. I found that one, I found the person. When I define the indicator, I define the indicator in a way that is at least one, fine, done. However, and if no one of my household has at least five years of education, but I only have data for some of them, uh -oh. That poses a problem because, yes, every people that I'm seeing in my data, they don't have education, but there is here, like other people, that they actually might have five years of education and I don't know. So what we did here, the rule was, if we have information for at least two-thirds of the household members and they happen to all of them not having, we go ahead and we say that they are deprived. But it's a rule. It's two-thirds. It allows us to, to, to not have to drop. Ah, not have to drop. Why? Because if I cannot do, 
this, if I cannot get a, a, a create an indicator that allows me to, to, to know if a household is deprived, even when I have some infor missing information, I will have to drop that observation. For instance, electricity. If, a, if I don't know if a household has an electricity, I don't know. <coughs> and I cannot create the MPI. <coughs> because I cannot, it's not there. Uh, or if no one answered the attending school's question, I cannot. Why? <coughs> because remember when we had our matrix and we had like our indicators. In this example, it's three indicators. And I have some missing values there. How to deal with them? So, how do I know what's the average score, the average deprivation of that person three? I don't know. Maybe he's deprived on the first indicator, maybe not. I don't know. How do I know if he's poor? I don't know. So what happens in this case when there is an indicator? So in the first time, I try to design an indicator that covers my <laughs> missing values. If I can't, and sometimes I can't, there is no way, electricity, <laughs> there is no data, there is no data, I have to drop that observation. So this can be a big problem. <laughs> Why can this be a big problem? We know. The moment we drop some people, we might have with losing representativity. It depends. It depends that maybe I don't, the fact that I don't have information for that people was a random occur occurrence. So, fine. But if the, the characteristics of the people for who I have information and the people for who I don't have the information are systematically different, my, 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 my results will be biased again. What can we do? What can we do? A bias analysis. So normally this drop on the sample is associated, like the big drops tend to be associated with few indicators. Most cases, nutrition. Nutrition, maybe because it's hard to collect the information, is a good candidate for missing values. And so when we have like we identify nutrition is a problematic indicator. We have it uh, leads to we lose 10% of our, our sample. What do we do? We go to the other indicators and we compare the people we are dropping and the people we are keeping. And we see if in the other indicators they are very different or not. I go to trees, to the household standards, to the education, and I do a, a means testing. Of the, of the proportion, to see if the proportion of the deprived in the other indicators is the same or not. Basically, just that. The results. If I find no significant difference, it's awesome. So it means that, yes, the, it's missing at random. So I don't know, like, this was a, it uh, happens, but the people are systematically the similar or identical in, uh, on average. Like, so that I don't find that one group is more deprived in lots of indicators than the other. So, good, I can use the reduced sample. I still should report the percentage of people that I'm dropping. So I should still say, oh, by the way, when I present my results, there was 10% of the sample that went off. So the people can see. Uh, yes. I can say a little bit about that next. I was not going to plan, but since you bring <laughs> I can say a little bit about that. Uh, so, assuming imputation is a step further, so I'll yeah. talk a little bit about that next. Uh, but otherwise, I don't have option, because if I don't have data, I don't have data. <laughs> so I have to drop them. 
So it's not really an option. It's once I define the indicators, I can, if it's before, I can say, oh, this indicator is a problematic one. No, but it, yeah, it's good because like then everyone needs. I'm not saying that it's an easy decision, but I'm saying just like it, it will happen. Depends on how on the percentage of people. It's always going to happen that you'll have some missing observations. And so what you can do before, if you are designing the, the variable and you know that a, a, a ver, uh, an indicator will be very problematic, yes, you should think twice. It might be very important, but you know that you're never going to be able to have accurate data. Maybe you shouldn't include it. But once you decided to include it, it's going to happen. It might be in a bigger or smaller percentage, but there is no perfect data set. So there will be always some, some observations that and it's enough that I don't have for one indicator, as I said, like we might have everything else. You don't have that, I cannot include. I wish I could, so I cannot. So this is what I do to, make sh to see what's the impact of dropping them. And if, but if it's good news, if I don't find statistical significance, statistical significant differences in their deprivations, it seems that, yes, it happens. So it was a mistake that didn't happen systematically. It's something that, if there is, I still can do something. I can still use that sample and say, this is a upper, so the direction of the bias. So yes, so I compare these two, the people for who I have data and the people for who I don't have data, and I find out that the people for who I don't have data tend to be always more deprived than these, these, and these. So my measure is probably being a lower bound, because as I'm ignoring this set of people that tend to be more deprived, I'm not seeing the real picture. I'm seeing the minimum, or close to the minimum. So since yeah, I had planned to end there, but since I'll go so a little thing, can I open this like this or I have to? Yes. About imputation, yes, that's true. In income, when in poverty, they use imputation lots of times, so it's practical. So what is the imputation? So they have a model where the achievement is the explanatory variable. And they estimate this this the achievement in a set of, uh, sorry, it's the explained variable, <laughs> so it's the dependable yeah. variable. And they regress this in a set of covariates, in a set of explanatory variables. For the people who, for who they, we have uh, information. And then we predict the achievement for the people for who we don't have information. So include, we have to make sure that the, our explanatory variables, we at least have information. So we can uh, regress uh, sanitation, on, I don't know, I never did for sanitation, but pro on the location, because maybe some locations I have higher probability of having or not, on consumption, if I have data, go lucky if you do, on other electricity, on a set of variables that you should have data for the ones that you don't have sanitation. And then you predict, you use the parameters of that regression, and you go to the people you don't have electricity, and you predict, you say, oh, the predictive value of electricity is this, so this person should be deprived or not. And they do that for income. When we go to multidimensional poverty, this is much more problematic. And in truth, there is not a, yet a good answer because there needs further research. 
problems first, and these problems happens always by definition of using imputation. The model needs to be accurate, or otherwise you might be messing even more. The problem also in the, but well, this is general. When you go to multidimensional poverty, you are you want the joint the distribution. So if you of deprivation. So if you do different models for different deprivations, your results like there is here you are losing the joint because you are thinking, assuming that things are not related and they may be related. So ideally, you would predict a vector of deprivations. But still, this is also problematic for something like, we need it to be accurate at the household level. I don't want an average, I have to be really accurate. And that also, don't go ahead. And so this is not being done and we don't, we don't see now yet how can be done properly. And the final point is just like, this also doesn't solve the non-applicable populations. So you cannot go estimate nutrition for women above 50 if you don't have information for no women above, above 50. So this is not a solution for that. This is another issue. This is just for the missing values. So my answer is, I see lots of problems, but there is needs for further research, so we'll go ahead and try to apply it. And I think that's it. Okay, a question. <laughs> In Finland, most of the demographic surveys these days, they mm -hmm. have household questionnaires mm -hmm. as well as the individuals, mm -hmm. individual questionnaire. And I believe in the MPI calculations, you use mostly the household questionnaires. Mm -hmm. No? Mm -hmm. No. We we mer we mer must all yes we we all the that needs say we use the household we use the women we use the child and we use the men because normally the, there were these four recodes that's normally the ones where the relevant information for the MPI come from. Okay, so good to know that. that. That means suppose questions like ask to women, do you have access to contraception or do you use contraception or something. They are not in the MPI, but they are available. But yeah, they are yeah, not in the MPI. If I want to use that kind you of can. information, we can. Yes. Okay, thank you. So, sorry. <laughs> so, uh, good one. Uh, it's a question? No. No, no, I was just saying that access to contraceptives by women doesn't tell you the whole story. There isn't, sorry? men also. Yes, that's, a that's the kind of discussions that you have to have in your group and think about the implications. The implications of such indicator for your measure. Have a good one.